You're listening to the Reef and Focus podcast, produced by the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. But to really understand reefs, you need to understand them in space and time. Uh, and really, that's what the nuanced picture of health is. There's areas that are good, there's areas that are not so good. They're neither fine nor, and they certainly aren't all dead. Yeah, look, it's great to have you here today. We've got with us the, um, the Reef Authority's Chief Scientist, Dr. Roger Beeden. And the topic we're going to talk about is probably the most Googled question when it comes to talking about the Great Barrier Reef. It's the big issue. And that is the question, is the reef dead? So when we look at what people are talking about, what they're asking, that always pops up as the number one question. And we'll get to that in just a sec. Um, But firstly, Roger, we also talk a lot about at the Reef Authority wanting people to see the reef, to fall in love with the reef and to do what they can to protect the reef. So I think my first question to you is what was it that made you fall in love with the reef? Great. It's a great question and, um, you know, real pleasure answering it. Um, And thank you for the time. so I'm from the other GBR, so from Great Britain. And so the reality is that I actually fell in love with the Great Barrier Reef from afar. And it was a sort of diet as a kid of Jacques Cousteau movies and David Attenborough documentaries that just made me fall in love with the sort of majesty of the place. And then it took me a while to get here, but once I did, I mean, I've, I really, really, um, it, it exceeded all expectations. It's as close to going into space as most of us are going to get. Um, and it's just extraordinary. I mean, it's when you see it in its living wonder, it's one of those things that is genuinely a wonder of the world. Uh, I particularly fell in love with corals, the, the sort of foundations of the reef, because they're simple invertebrates and yet they make this incredible structure that it's often said you can see it from space that are so gigantic so it just partly because it blows my mind that's what made me fall in love with it but it's also about a, a deep felt desire to want to help protect it for the future can you just quickly take us through what it was like that very first time it was head underwater to actually see the great barrier reef yeah, absolutely, because actually, to be fair, the conditions weren't that great on the first time that I did that. It was, it was pretty windy and all the rest of it. And so lots of it was thinking about, oh, I had the boats rolling around and all this sort of stuff. But actually then getting in the water, it really kind of... I'd seen a couple of other coral reef systems around the world beforehand in the Red Sea, actually over in the Caribbean, and nothing really prepares you in some ways for the Great Barrier Reef when it's at its best. It's, it's such a beautiful, colourful, amazing environment that's got so many things moving. It's that dynamic sense of it. It's the fact that it's, you know, living, kind of almost breathing in terms of what's going on there. All the all the organisms, you know, billowing in and out from corals, the, you know, and then you see your first shark and sort of major megafauna. It's just it's just a magical experience and something that you just want to share with everyone. I'm also a really avid photographer and so getting to grips with how you take pictures of the underwater world so you can try and share that kind of um, great sense of connection with other people. It's just been an ongoing, inspiring journey. And so was that the spark for a career in marine science? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I did a undergrad degree in um, environmental biotechnology, actually, and then worked in the pharmaceutical industry in the UK and then New Zealand for about 10 years. And um, that was really fascinating, you know, how you translate science and into health outcomes. But I got to the point where I'd kind of really enjoyed that, but I really wanted to focus on something I was deeply passionate about. And so I'd been an avid diver through that journey, had actually come over this side of the world. And so, you know, that lifelong love of the Great Barrier Reef drew me to here. 
came to Townsville to study. We came for 18 months and 20 years later, we're still here because it's still spectacular. So, yeah, it was a, it was a kind of that, that kind of nexus that happens. And then I've been very fortunate to be able to pursue. I started off doing a master's degree at JCU and that progressed into a PhD whilst working at the Marine Park Authority. So I've been quite lucky to be able to combine what I'm doing for work with the science to then try and generate good outcomes for the reef into the future. Now, you, you made that comment that, um, you know, you saw the reef and, and it was spectacular. Um, that leads me on to the question that everyone is Googling at the moment and everyone asks us whenever they find out we work at the Reef Authority. Um, and that is, is the reef dead? So, Roger, what's the answer to that? So, so the answer to the question is that um, the answer is complex, and the reason why the answer is complex is is there's several parts to it that I I'd, I'd sort of want to share. Um, I think one of the quotes that I've heard recently is that the reef's neither dead nor is it fine, and, that, and that's actually the true state of play at the moment. But corals, the sort of foundational organisms, the things that build the structure that all the fish and lots of the other critters that we know and love on the reef actually live in, they're colonial organisms, so they're, they're actually animals, but they stay still, so they're sessile, they stay in one place, a bit like trees, but those are plants. And then they get their, their energy from the little zooxanthellae that are in their tissues that um, act like little batteries, giving them all of that energy and that food. But the challenge is that they're actually, what I mean by colonial animals is that they're each individual polyp, so each little bit that looks like an upside down jellyfish in a cup, those actually bandy together into what's called a colony. So each polyp is actually alive and is actually an individual, could be an individual organism. So when we talk about death, we're talking about, well, if a polyp dies, yes, that's alive or dead. But for a colony, a group of those polyps, if some of them die, that means the colony's partly dead. <laughs> You know, so they don't die like we do. And that's actually quite important when we think about the impacts because sometimes the impacts can be big enough to kill off whole colonies. But those colonies can also replicate themselves and actually make huge areas, huge almost underwater forests, a bit like some colonial trees do. There's a good example of that in the US. And that, that then means that they can actually regenerate from those areas. So when we say is it alive or dead it's important to understand that you know that critical part of the biology of um of corals and such some of them actually reproduce by breaking apart so um, that can actually be partly beneficial all of that said though the situation isn't all good climate change is causing some really severe pressures to the coral foundations of the reef that's why we're so concerned about it and that's because that relationship between the animal and those little um, algae, the little plants that are inside them, is temperature sensitive. And they're like Goldilocks. They need it to be about the right temperature in order for that relationship to keep going. And then when it doesn't, it turns into a thing called coral bleaching, whereby they, that, that relationship breaks down, the, the corals kick out the little, the little um, zooxanthellae. And then the problem then is the it's not actually, they're not dead when they're bleached, but... If, they go, if that goes for long enough, temperatures go for long enough, then the actual polyps can die, the whole colony can actually die, and then large areas can die. And that's when we get really concerned about it. So our concern is multiple fold really about, about the reef into the future. Coral reefs have, have basically been around for very long periods of time. Coral's been around probably 500 million years. They've been through extinction events before, and that's often talked about. But the reality is the pace of change as a result of climate is accelerating so quickly that we're changing the boundaries within which they operate, uh, within which they live really, really quickly. And the question is whether they can actually keep up with that. And so when we see these large die-offs of area of coral, whether it's from a 
coral bleaching, mass coral bleaching event, or whether it's from a severe tropical cyclone, it, it hinders the ability of the corals to be able to bounce back from that, that's that, that sort of resilience. So to come back to the kind of question about is it alive or dead, it's probably neither. It's almost Schrodinger's cat. You know, it's kind of, it depends on where you look at points in time. We have seen, and I've seen personally, underwater devastating consequences from bleaching events and from major severe tropical cyclones, and for that matter, from crown of thorn starfish predation. But I've also seen incredible recovery. And one of the advantages being around in the Marine Park Authority for a few years is you do get to see that. And, and the recovery is really rapid. So their capacity to bounce back is still there. The pressures are also still there at the moment. And that's why it's so important that we take action to support that ability to bounce back um, into the future. So for people who don't live here, they're not heading out onto the reef, who may be you know, somewhere else in the world, mm. when they hear that, they're probably thinking, so the reef isn't there. But in fact, the reef is a, it's a massive area. And if you head out from so many points, you'll find stunning coral reefs existing and and healthy reefs as well at the same time so i think is there that that confusion i guess over the perspective we're talking about coral we're talking about coral colonies we're talking about reefs but the great barrier reef is enormous there is so much more than those individual areas well, that's, that's absolutely right and really important. So, I mean, I talked about the smallest scale, the polyp, we then go out to a coral colony, but there's billions of those up and down the length and breadth of the Great Barrier if it's in you know, an area the size of Italy, and that's an area and actually it's three-dimensional. You know, there is slopes of all of those reefs, 3,000 reefs with that have been made up by corals and other organisms on those reefs over time. And so you get a lot of variability. So even in the worst impact events so far, fortunately, we have areas that have been really badly damaged. Then we've had areas that are actually in really good condition. And so, and actually much of the time, those areas that are in good condition are able to replenish other areas. And that's an important part of how we manage the system as a whole we manage for that ability to tolerate impacts and the capacity to bounce back from that that recovery so you're absolutely right you know the variability in how um, particular pressures play out it's not the same everywhere we actually have some really good knowledge about how that plays out both from the impact events and pressures over over time so there's a two two degree temperature difference between the top of the reef up near the Torres Strait and the bottom of the reef right down in uh, the Capricorn bunker group out offshore from Gladstone so naturally there's a two degree temperature difference on average in a year and so that gives a big you know range of conditions that those corals that have, have adapted to within the Great Barrier from Brock. And that's one of it, the reasons why it's uh, the sort of resilient system that we know it to be today. But again, that doesn't mean that the pressures aren't there. No, and when we're looking at, at the health of the reef, um, coral cover is something that we have discussed in the past as, a, as an indicator of what's going on. We're seeing coral cover um, is, is actually quite good at the moment. Is that a, a positive? Are we looking at that as a, a positive sign? Look, I mean, I think it's a bit like taking your blood pressure. You know, you get, you get a particular reading and it can give you some kind of impression of it and it depends upon what you've been doing at home, your age and those sort of things. So one metric doesn't tell the whole story. It's a really important metric and it's we're very fortunate to actually have that over a long period of time. But the deeper story is that the corals on the Great Barrier Reef, one of the reasons why they've been so successful is there are many, many species. There's four or 500 species of hard corals, maybe another eight to a 1,000 species of soft corals, the ones that, you know, um, 
uh, are related but don't don't actually form the skeleton of the reef or the backbone of the reef. And, and the reality of that is they have different strategies. It's a bit like going into a forest. There's lots of different plants there. There's the trees, but then there's lots of other things there. Some of the things that are there grow really quickly. So we quite often use the analogy of like what you see after a bushfire, for example. If a bushfire is bad enough, then it burns everything, but actually some of the big, long, old-growth trees manage to live through and survive that, like we have some big, you know, often mound shapes, large corals that can survive many of the impacts. They're sort of big and tough, slowing, slow to grow. Other things actually might burn in the fire, but then they come back really rapidly afterwards. And so we have several coral species that typically the plating and branching ones that people will often see in photographs. Those grow really quickly. And it's a big difference, like the big mounding corals that can live for a thousand or more years, they grow a centimetre a year, so slow, slow, slow. Whereas the branching and plating corals, these can grow at like 10 to 15 centimetres a year. And so in year one, it might be this small. In year two, it might be that. Year three, it's this, then this, then this. You know, so you can rapidly go from what looks like a, a very almost moonscape area after a big impact to a, a very large amount of coral cover in a short period of time. So those those are the ones that tend to come back. And that's one of the reasons that's underpinning that sort of rise in coral cover because it's the, the figures are actually averaged across all those different species. So one of the things that the Australian Institute of Marine Science is looking at is whether the impacts and sequence of impacts is changing the mix of species that we see on reefs because, um, as I said before, having a lot of different species is one of the, the cornerstones of resilience, its ability to adapt to this sort of change. Um, so it, it doesn't tell the whole story, just that and what's going on with coral cover. It's it's um, it's a really important indicator, but we need to understand more. And actually, what we what it does tell us is that the reef still has the the capacity to recover when it has impacts at the moment, and that's really important. And that's why a lot of people go out to the reef now, and even if in an area that was impacted a few years ago, it can look absolutely spectacular. And in many places, it does right now. So is that the the benefit of the the bite of the reefs? biodiversity that it that although impacted at times it still has those that can come back quickly or those that grow fast it's that benefit of biodiversity look absolutely i mean biodiversity is, why is biodiversity important it's a bit like the question is the reef dead biodiversity is critically important because it gives what's called functional redundancy so the the functions of the reef the things that make it grow or make it you know um, the food webs and the things they're crucial and when there are many species if one of them gets disease or is lost or the like then actually other species can take that particular role and it and it keeps the sort of pro processing going on a particular reef so it supports that function it's important for that bounce back capacity because it means other species can fill that niche and um, really a bit like plants what what corals are doing is competing for light you know they need light in order to to get energy and so they'll rapidly colonize areas because they're essentially looking for um or one you know, i say wanting you know talking like, like people but they're, they're you know their strategy is to get the light that they need and the nutrients that they need so that they can actually grow fast and and reproduce so yeah i think biodiversity is crucial both for the corals but then all the other organisms and those are critically important at maintaining the corals maintaining how much algae is on the reef that competing with corals so absolutely biodiversity is a hallmark of having you know, that capacity to bounce back from impacts now uh, you you use the term um earlier of the big picture in the reef uh, we, we're looking at you know coral cover as, as one indicator of the big picture what if we were to go and have a look at 
the big picture on the reef today, what would we be seeing as far as that dead alive? What what's out there? Um, look, I mean, there's there's a there's a mixture of things out there. You can go and find reefs, and, and we actually actively do. So we have a program that's focused upon Cranathorn starfish control, for example, and on some of those reefs, Cranathorn starfish, native pest animal, so a big starfish that goes out and, and it's really adept to eating coral. You can find reefs that have been really heavily impacted by those, but we've reduced the number of reefs that are, that are having that impact. Conversely, you can go to reefs that actually previously had major coral bleaching events and there's lots of that branching and plating coral and it looks beautiful you know it's it's grown up over the last four or five years you can go to back reefs which are normally dominated so that's the area that's not got the major wave um, patterns happening in the, in the, uh, the background area of, of an individual reef and you'll find lots of those mounding corals that take that are slow to grow but are really really tough and strong over time so it varies depending upon where you go the inshore part closer to the coast is quite different from what happens on the outer shelf which is has a much more dynamic area and then it's different whether you're in the southern region the central region the northern region all the more reason to go and see as many parts of it as possible and for those of us that are lucky enough to do so you see a lot of variability some of that's natural the challenge is that some of that's also being driven by our behaviours and that's what the Marine Park Authority's job is, is to reduce the, the pressures that are happening within the Marine Park to the best extent possible so we can protect that biodiversity. So is that, do you think, where the confusion that people have about the state of the reef is coming from? Because there are all those different areas, you'll see different things if you go out to one part of the reef to another, you may have one reef that's doing brilliantly another not too far away that's struggling is that where that confusion comes from I think it comes from a few so absolutely I mean we, we tend to be as human beings you know we don't have massive attention spans there's a few of us that are lucky enough to focus on this all the time and so you get the more detailed story but a lot of it's driven by you know pictures speak a thousand words if you've seen a bad picture or you've seen a, and also you know just actually going underwater quite a lot of the time if you go into the water, it gets rid of red light. And so actually it can look quite green and dull sometimes. I've heard people on tourism vessels say that. And it's actually, those are quite healthy corals. They've actually got lots of those little algae inside, which are green. You know, So actually it can change that. So people's perception can be shifted by what they expect it to be and then what they see. That can be altered by how, how the conditions outside, whether it's cloudy or really bright and all of those sort of things. And then it does depend upon where you go and when you go there. So I think the other thing I'd say about it is corals don't really exist or coral reefs don't really exist on human lifespans. It's not just that they don't die like us. You know, time span for a, a massive variety is the big boulder corals. They've been around for hundreds of years. It's, you know, they're slowly, slowly, slowly changing. So, you know, we exist in a way of like expecting to see rapid change and you see some of that with the faster growing things but to really understand reefs you need to understand them in space and time uh, and really that's what the nuanced picture of health is there's areas that are good there's areas that are not so good they're neither fine nor and they certainly aren't all dead so that i think takes us to what you're talking about before which are threats to the reef mm. what are the the three i guess to pick a number the three main threats to the reef what would they be so, I mean, I'm going to give you a sort of like quite tight answer to that. It's climate change, climate change and climate change are the threats to the reef at the moment. The other things that are threatening the reef, and they're, they're at a different scale. And that's the reason why I'm saying it in that way. It's not quite location, location, location. But it is really important to emphasise that 
pressure as a whole has is is really posing a very significant threat to, to everything that's there and that's why we're so focused upon um, how we can address that and build resilience to it there are other pressures on the reef and many of them are localized and actually there are good actions that are being taken to try and address those so the threats around um, poor water quality um, the great barrier reef is you know it's it's grown up alongside the part of the eastern part of Australia on the Queensland coast. And there's lots of major rivers there, particularly the Burdekin and the Fitzroy, and they have a you know they they actually flow out into the Great Barrier Reef Lagoon, um, and that can bring all sorts of things with it. Particularly when we get major major flood events, which we have every so often as a result of some of the climate patterns that go on. So poor water quality, particularly as a result of changing land practices, since there's been a lot of people living along the coast over the last 150 years. That's a, a major pressure, and there's big programs in place to do something about that. Um, there's also potential for overfishing or sort of unsustainable fishing practices, and again, there's lots of measures in place. We we are very fortunate in Australia that we actually understand the system, even though it's so big, um, and those pressures have been identified. So, at the sort of may, next tier down of major scale of pressures, then I'd say those two. Probably going to go for a fourth as well. That's partly because I've been working on it a lot for the last while. And that's Cranathorn starfish. Um, and the reason to make that case is that uh, in many ways, Cranathorn starfish have been probably been a natural feature of the Great Barrier for you know, most of its history, most of its recent history. It's probably been around about six, 7,000 years, the modern reef. Um, and there's good evidence that they've been around a lot at the time. But they're very, very well adept, um, evolved, exquisitely evolved to take advantage of corals, to eat coral. Um, and as a result, we can see major losses of coral when they get to plague proportions. Individual animals are fine, actually probably quite good for the reef, but they can boom and bust a bit like plague locusts. And when they do, they can mow down whole areas, a bit like sort of deforestation. Forestation. Again, the reason why that's an important as a pressure is that it's actually one that's something that we can do something about. And it's also important that we do something about it so that the peak impacts of that pressure don't coincide with other impacts from climate change, like severe tropical cyclones, if they're being driven by climate change or particularly mass coral bleaching events. What you don't want is all the buses, the bad buses to come along at once. And we've certainly seen that in the last couple of decades and some of the messaging around um, is the reef dead or is it not is actually been driven by its cumulative impacts. So it's climate change, climate change, climate change, and then cumulative impacts are probably the major um, things that, that threaten the Great Barrier Reef because it's when you get all of those things happening at once that you then see many of the underpinning processes that enable the reef to bounce back being eroded. So that's what we, you know, when we talk about this term resilience, it's really meaning that does it still have the capacity to bounce back from those pressures? Well, let's hit that one then. Let's dive straight in. Climate change, what is the impact of a, a warming climate on the Great Barrier Reef? So there's a there's a few crucial things and we've sort of maybe touched on them, but um, first thing I'd say is that the, the challenge of greenhouse gas emissions is that they create two major problems. One of them is it's called global warming. So we see this changing in the greenhouse gas um, or sort of the greenhouse effect around the planet, meaning that um, average temperatures go up. And um, that has major implications because corals are adapted to a particular temperature environment. 
Now, they can potentially shift in that, but it really depends upon where they grew up, and I mean each individual colony, as to what the range of temperatures that they can accept actually are before the relationship between the coral animal and the little um, algae that give them most of their food breaks down. And so what we typically see is that when temperatures in summertime go about one degree above the long-term average. In Australia, it's about the maximum temperature in months is usually in February. When it's about one degree above the February average, and that happens for many, many days or several weeks, then we start to see coral bleaching. It's really, you know, there's no question that that occurs. And that hasn't been occurring until now, and it's changing really rapidly. And that's why we've seen a sequence of these major bleaching events. As I said before, that doesn't mean that they're dead. When they're bleached, they're not dead. They're under lots of stress. It's a stress response. The problem is if it persists for too long, then they essentially the animals don't have enough food and they and then die. We also see that, that, that climate change and the putting the greenhouse effect for the planet means that you're putting more energy into the system. Essentially, it's been locking in more energy that would have been radiating out into space before if we didn't have CO2 levels as high as they are now. And that has the, the effect of actually the ocean absorbs most of that. I think something like 90% of that energy has been absorbed by the ocean. Um, and one of the other things, phenomena we see that coral reefs are associated with, particularly in the tropical regions, not so much in the equatorial regions, is actually tropical storms, hurricanes in the northern hemisphere, cyclones down where we are, or typhoons out in this, they're all the same thing. But those tropical storm systems, they, they are created, cyclogenesis happens when you go above a certain temperature. So you need ocean temperatures to be above about 25 and a half degrees before a cyclone can form. And the reality is the more time you spend with temperatures above that, the more probability there is that you get you could get cyclone formation. And perhaps more important than anything else, the evidence doesn't suggest we're going to get more cyclones. It just means the risks of severe ones is actually increased. And that has both implications for people on land and particularly for coral reefs because the stronger they are, the more they persist, the more likely it is to break and damage coral and cause mortality. Yeah, because that's, we, obviously we are learning more and more about bleaching, particularly in the last few years when we have had those mass bleaching events. Cyclones are talked about as a, a great threat um, or pressure on the reef, but how does a cyclone impact a coral reef that's under the water? So look, having seen one firsthand, so Cyclone Yazi that some people maybe remember in 2011 that sort of went across the coast between um, around sort of Cardwell. Um, underwater, I mean, there, there are temperature and there are depth, there are loggers in the water column. And there was so there's a there's a shipwreck called the Yongala south of Townsville that was moved, even though it had been there more than 100 years by the, and that gives you, it's in about 30 metres of water. But there was actually mixing of the water down to about 200 metres. So whilst we see what's going on in the air and we talk, talk about the track, what's happening is that the, the, the cyclonic system is actually also driving a huge amount of movement of water and so you can get like an underwater tsunami moving across the reef and um, importantly one of the critical things that reefs actually provide in terms of benefits for people is actually coastal protection so in these tropical areas where you have coral reefs they sit offshore 
Um, and they actually act like seawalls. And so for many coastal communities, particularly in, you know, other nations and for that matter in Australia, the barrier in Great Barrier Reef is actually literal. It actually means that it's actually protecting. And so what you saw underwater from Cyclone Yazzie, for example, was absolute devastation. You know, huge corals that are probably several hundred years old being bowled around like bowling balls all through the reef system, the branching and plating stuff's being mown down. I mean, it looked like what you'd see in a forest after a major cycling gun. So, so it can be, it's very visible mechanical disturbance and it can cause big areas to be damaged and killed at that particular point in time. But then you typically also get patches that are still alive and that's really important for then that recovery. So there's a flip side to it that actually these typically happen when we can have we have warming events as well. And so if the cyclone isn't too bad and it's not too big, then actually sometimes it can cool down the reef. So it's a really kind of it's they're highly dynamic as systems. They always have been, but they're becoming even more dynamic. And so I always get a bit worried when people start wishing for cyclones to cool down the reef during bleaching events because, you know, be careful what you wish for. But um, there is no doubt that some of that monsoonal activity that can turn into storms can also help to offset some of the temperature. But when it gets into really big major cyclones, it can be devastating as well. And the, and the worst scenario is when you get both of those sort of things happening on top of each other and, and compounding those events. So is that why we often look at reef health through that lens of whether it's an El Nino or a La Nina year, one being very hot and dry, one where you would anticipate uh, a lot more rain, that will impact the health of the reef over that critical summer period? So, again, it's a great question. And uh, I think the challenge of the El Nino Southern Oscillation and the phases of it, La Nina, El Nino and actually neutral is really what we were talking about there is the movement of this what's called the, the, you know, the, the pool of very warm water and where it's sitting in the Pacific. And it sits in different places depending upon which phase it's at. And as you say, because the oceans actually drive much of what happens in terms of climate and climate then gives you weather, then we either get drier conditions, particularly during some of the um, El Ninos, and we tend to get wetter conditions during La Nina. Um, and that can then mean that that can be associated with more tropical storms, particularly if the if the sea surface temperature is above that 25, 26 degrees that I was, ta- that I was talking about before. So it's not that one is good and one is bad. Uh, and actually, unfortunately, we seem to, you know, whilst there may have been, there's probably are some patterns that suggest we've had more cyclone activity during La Nina events and more risk of coral bleaching during El Ninos. That's actually been broken now. The last bleaching event we saw was actually during a La Nina year, so when you typically wouldn't expect that. And that's largely because the underlying pressure of climate change is now shifting the whole global system to a point whereby there's so much energy there that even you can get these um, heating events even in what would have typically been a less risky um, pattern year. So I think overall they definitely are important in driving the localised climate pattern, I mean, sorry, localised Pacific-wide climate patterns. And then there are other systems that also affect that. And that's why we work with uh, the Bureau of Meteorology globally, the World Meteorological Organization, and um, in the, our colleagues in the US, uh, in the US from uh, NOAA to understand how these, these climate systems are playing out. The last thing I would say about it is that actually one of the things that's really positive at the moment is that we have more knowledge than we've ever had. We can model climate systems. I mean, most people would probably be aware 
or if you're as old as I am anyway, when, when you, you, know, you didn't trust the weather forecast. Weather forecasts are incredible these days and they're incredible on multi-day, you know, week, month scales. And that's because the climate models that underpin them, that help us understand what is happening and why climate change is a major risk to, the, to all of us, um, are so good. And they are really, really effective and accurate. And so it's useful to have those tools because it can help us to focus on management actions, but it also should make all of us be much more confident in, unfortunately, in the, the forecasts of climate change that are um, already coming true and actually what's in store in the future. And it is particularly in those hot summer months that we need to be most aware and to be keeping a really close eye on exactly what's happening out there on the reef. Look, absolutely. Um, I, I, so one of the, so the, the coral bleaching events, because they're so visible, they are something that gets lots of attention and I'm not saying that they shouldn't. And absolutely we need to, we, we do every year in the lead up to summer, look at what the conditions are likely to be for cyclones, granithal and starfish for potential coral bleaching events. We do that with the partners I mentioned before. Um, and if there is a particular event and the forecasts come to a point where we start seeing those kind of conditions, then we use the tools that are at our disposal to be able to assess that and, again, do that with our partners. Some of that's done by aerial surveys. Some of it's using satellite um, tools to assess what's going on. Some of it's actually in-water survey. So we've got a really comprehensive system to do it. But importantly, the reason to do it is about what we do afterwards um, and actually arguably before. So the point of having that information is so it's not, we don't just think about this in summer because it's summer when, um, yes, you want to know what's happening. Like if there's a bushfire, you want to know what's happening during that fire. But it's also about how you might target your response actions to protect reefs that have been damaged or the like by those events afterwards. And we might do that with all sorts of tools that are available to management. We can talk about some of those. But we make most of the gains, a bit like preparing for bushfire, most of the gains are made by all the rest of the year, when we're taking action every single day, when we've got rangers out there taking action every day, when we've got policies in place every single day to protect the ability of the reef, its biodiversity, its ability to tolerate impacts and to bounce back from them. So it's like it's almost even though this becomes the period that we talk about the impacts, actually the effort uh, and the the times we can be most effective is in in the in between times and the lead up to and actually following on from those events. So if we can then explore some of those, have a bit of a breakdown and understanding of what are the actions that can be taken? Because we're, we're talking about climate, which is going to impact. We can't, on a day-to-day -day basis, just stop a cyclone. No. Um, I don't know, that sounds like a really stupid question. But what is it that we are doing to ensure that resilience, um, to get those corals, mm. I guess, in the, the best possible position they can be in before going into that time and then as you said the the before and then the after so so again i, I think this is the this is the critical question in the end of it um and the answer is there's a lots of things that we are doing and increasingly that we can do um one of the probably the most significant things that's happened on the Great Barrier Reef, and it was a sort of the, the sort of exemplar at the time, is actually the the zoning plan, so the marine protected area network that's set up, and that the areas that we have some reefs where you have different re, um, rules around what you're allowed to do. The the reason why I'm going to start with that particular example is that the green zone reefs, the reefs that we know where you're not allowed to go fishing, for example, and um, you can you can go and recreate there but you can't go and take fish um, 
We know, for example, that they are more resilient. They bounce back better from coral disease outbreaks. They bounce back better from from coral bleaching events. They bounce back better from um, cyclones. Um, they actually even bounce back better from um, from crown of thorns starfish outbreaks. That's what the evidence, the long term evidence suggests. And that was actually quite a surprise. And the the scientists are still unpacking exactly why that is. But again, I think it's to, it, we believe it's to do with that. The more that the network of different organisms, the biodiversity is in intact, the better able it is to tolerate impacts and to bounce back from it, particularly that, that tolerance. So the zoning plan, you know, 33% of the areas is actually closed to fishing. That's actually the sort of, in, it's like your investment portfolio. It's like your blue chip stock by investing in that or your superannuation plan. By having that, it actually then has spillover effects that helps the, the rest of the reef that is open to um, other sources of use to actually recover. So it's not just important in those reefs that are that are no take areas, it's actually important in the other ones. And again, there's really good evidence of that because the zoning um, was changed changed nearly 20 years ago and we've had very good monitoring since then. So that's the sort of rock bed of what happens in the marine park. And it's critically important because we're getting more pressures. So, you know, not only does it help today and it has been helping for 20 odd years, it's actually really important to sort of um, have that capacity to support resilience into the future. I'd also say then there's the water quality program. So again, I mentioned that there's been about 150 years of um, change in land use compared to what was there before we had uh, farms and other things dotted up and down the coastal development up and down the, the reef and um, during that time there's been a lot of um, flow and effects of particularly nutrients moving into the, uh, the Great Barrier Reef Lagoon through often through large flood events. Um, making sure that we don't make that any worse, so improving catchment practices, which is actually good economically for farmers as well, as many of the farmers are doing a really good job in improving that, that's a key tool, particularly for the inshore reef systems, the ones that are bathed in the waters that are sort of in the lagoon but also affected by those areas. That That's crucial. There's been a lot of work happening in that space um, over the last the couple of decades. All of the work on fisheries protection, so the, I talked about the zoning plan, it's one way we control fisheries, but the Queensland Government then controls the number of fish you're allowed to catch, what types of fish you're allowed to catch, where you're allowed to catch, so sorry, the, the tools that you're allowed to do that. So making sure that's as sustainable as possible, making sure people actually follow the rules that are out there, both the which gears they use and where they go to. All of those in combination are important elements of how you support resilience. Um, I would also contend that the Crown of Thorn Starfish Control Program, we don't actually really control Crown of Thorn Starfish because of Crown of Thorn Starfish. We can cr control them because they're really good at eating coral and the corals make those foundations of the reef. So in combination, all of those tools, and when you target them in the right place at the right time, you can amplify the, the resilience of the reef, its capacity to tolerate and recover from those impacts. Probably the last thing I'd say in this bit is that Climate change isn't a problem that's external to the Great Barrier Reef and its local community. I mean, there are effects and part, some of the emissions happen here. So doing all we can as individuals to um, reduce our carbon footprint, you know, you part, climate change is a problem of 8 billion people and its solution is probably 8 billion people taking action. And so knowing what you can do, understanding where you can make change, you know, that, that's crucially important as well as following the rules if you're actually out on the reef. Um, that are well and truly laid out. So we do talk about that quite a lot. You know, there are actions people can take. What are some of those actions so that, you know, when I go home tonight, there's something I might be able to change in the way I just live that could have that positive impact? 
Well, I mean, there's a, there's a raft of measures. And I mean, so typically one of the, the challenges in answering that question is that it depends upon what your um, desire and budget and, you know, complexity. There, there's a whole raft of things you do. You, you can calculate your own carbon footprint and you can offset that footprint. Now, you know, how you do that and exactly which are the right tools to do that with. I mean, for example, you can choose through Ergon Energy to have all of your electricity come from renewables. You can pay extra to do that if that's what you want to do. Lots of people put solar panels on the roofs of their house. I mean, I think Australia has the highest per capita amount, you know, so, but those are sort of potentially more expensive things. You can choose what transport you use. You know, there's things like what you eat can have a big effect upon your carbon footprint. So I think that the most important thing is get, um, absorb the information that helps you understand what um, the most impactful things are and then fit those in with your with your life. I think from our point of view as the Marine Park Authority, understand the rules that are out there and which things, you know, we are, we take very seriously our role as the sort of guardians of the reef um, with many other communities. And so often we, we've provided lots of information about what you can do. Follow the rules, you know, don't take unnecessary amounts of fish, et cetera. All of those things are important to that, uh, to the system as a whole. Um, and then there's lots of things around recycling and around you know, making sure we manage marine plastics, et cetera, or marine debris, et cetera. You can get involved um, and every little bit of it counts. Every little bit of it matters because we all need to be part of the solution. You just referred to then the, the role of the Reef Authority when it comes to the Great Barrier Reef. I think a question that I always sort of ponder is how do we actually manage a reef the size of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, it's, I've, you know, people say that it's it's bigger than Italy, um, that it's the 70 million football fields, that sort of size. So we're talking about a, a massive, a reef that's, that's massive. How do we manage that? And, and what is our role as reef managers in ensuring that or working towards reef resilience and reef health? Again, it's a great question. I mean, the reality is, it, yes, it is the size of Italy or Japan or pretty much close to, um, as I mentioned before, it's three-dimensional, you know, so you're managing, when we say an area, it's also the fact that those reefs are not just a sort of top-down viewpoint, they're actually like hillsides, you know, so there's coral or, or other organisms or seagrass meadows all the way through that, that volume, so it's massive. That said, though, um, we're at a point in time where we have more information about the reef than we've ever had. And uh, some of the things I'd draw your attention to, we've got really good satellite understanding of what happens above the water and the temperature of the water, really important for understanding how the differences in pressures play out, cyclone tracks, all that sort of stuff. But within the water, we've got really good modeling tools that actually help us to understand how the dynamics of water move. And the reason why that's important, so the current patterns, it's a bit like the whole Finding Nemo story, you know, following the EAC, you know, that, that that's a really big driver of change. It's quite important because it does things like um, it can it can seed crown of thorn starfish outbreaks through the reef. It can also reseed reefs with coral larvae. So that connectivity, as it's called, is really crucial to understand. And then when you want to think about how you manage the whole of the reef as a network. And really where I'm going with this is, the Great Barrier Reef is made up of, pro well, exactly how many reefs is actually still in some ways up for debate. And it's only because we've got understanding of the, the bathymetry, what's on the sea floor now, we're being able to unpack that. But um, depending upon what depth you actually go to determines how many reefs there are. But, but that said, understanding the connectivity between reefs means that we don't have to manage all 3,000 at once. 
You can manage the ones that are either under pressure or are most likely to drive recovery or are most likely to drive outbreaks or are actually really important because they're getting lots of, they've got lots of tourism there, so they're really important for a particular industry or they're ones that are important for fishing behaviour, etc. By understanding those dynamics, you can then think about how you tailor your suite of management actions to those locations. And they also change in time. So if you've had a big cyclone, then you might focus your activity in a particular area. Again, that's one of the reasons why the, the zoning plan the, is so important because it's actually it was actually based upon an understanding of what are called bioregions. So not something like 70 bioregions, 70 different types of habitat and areas within the marine park. Um, and then actually the zoning plan was set up so that it actually protected representative samples of that all the way through that 348,000 square kilometre area. And the point of doing that is again, that the more that you can protect examples in a network, the better able you are to sort of maximise the recovery potential of those when they get hit by particular pressures. So the, the answer, to the short answer to the question is we manage it as a network and we look to find pressures and then focus efforts where those pressures exist, but with an understanding that not all of the areas are the same. And I guess when people talk about managing a living organism like the Great Barrier Reef, there is always that concern of is what we're doing actually having an impact? Is it is it a positive? And I think from what you've been explaining, the work that's being done to manage the reef is actually having that positive impact. Um, from the zoning onwards, it's it's actually something that can be seen and measured. Look, absolutely. And I mean, this is repeated around the world. There's a, there's a reason why there's a sort of global target for 30 by 30, 30% protection of, of areas by uh, 2030. And that's because that sort of seems to be about the sweet spot of the amount of area you need to um, make sure is, is no take and has, we've seriously reduced all the pressures to then have that flow on effect of supporting downstream benefits within, in particularly in marine systems. And we've definitely seen that in the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, I think, I think I'm quoting this correctly. There are now more fish in the blue zones, the area you're allowed to take from, than there were in the green zones, the no-take zones, before we changed from 5% to 33%. So the point, that what that means is we had a relative, it was about 5% of the area you couldn't take fish from before 2004, that was expanded to 33%. The reality of doing that, of having that kind of the compound interest benefit, like putting in more superannuation, has been that there's now even more fish in the areas you are allowed to take from. So it was in everybody's interest to do it, even though that seems counterintuitive. So those things matter. And then, as I said before, we also see faster recovery in the areas that have got, um, you know, uh, that, are, that are fully or, or more protected than the others. So managing as a network is actually really important and actually how you then fit your other management um, actions on top of that is actually the opportunity for how we deal with these cumulative pressures on the reef. So I think if we go back to that original question that started this conversation, is the reef dead? Um, from what you've been saying, the reef is not dead. <laughs> um, the reef is definitely there, but the reef is under pressure. Look, I mean, it's, uh, that, you, absolutely. That, that's, it's, it's neither dead nor is it fine. And I mean, I think that that's a really good summary of where we're at. And whilst that not, might not be as, as simple an answer as, as um, some might like to make it out to be, um, that, that's the truth of what's happening at the moment. You will find areas that are 
uh, in poor condition and you'll find areas that are in spectacular condition. I would say that if you go to most coral reefs around the world, this is not just a, an Australian and, you know, Eastern Australian phenomenon. This is true across all of Australia's uh, coral reef systems. It's true across the whole of the Pacific, through the Red Sea, through the um, areas in the Caribbean region, etc. We are seeing major pressures on reef. I, I would contend that the Great Barrier Reef, because of the protection that's in place and this investment over a long period of time, you know, its resilience is clearly intact and it's, it's probably in the best position to be able to deal with these knocks and shocks, but that shouldn't diminish the, um, the gravity of actually how serious some of these, these threats are. So I don't want to sugarcoat that. It's un they're under serious pressure and it really, really matters what happens with climate. Climate, climate, climate. You know, th there is a big difference in what will happen was very likely to happen to the Great Barrier Reef under the different scenarios of when humanity decides to fully deal with climate change. There's a big difference between whether we stay at 1.5 degrees above um, long-term average versus two degrees versus three and a half, et cetera. It's huge differences. Um, and actually, you know, I think we should probably all reflect on coral reefs are telling us something. I mean, they've been through extinction events before and the end of it. I suspect that coral reefs in some form will be around for long periods of time because they, you know, they are able to adapt. But, you know, we run the risk of it being a very, very different place and actually them, them not providing the functions that we rely on, whether that's coastal protection, whether that's food security for probably half a billion, if not a billion people around the world, the myriad of biodiversity, all the tourism opportunities, that, that's what's actually at risk and its consequences for us. So I was going to end up with the question of what would you want that take-home message for anyone watching or listening today to be? But I think it is really that climate message. So I think there's two actually, and it's partly because we haven't um, importantly touched on it. And if you really want to understand what's happening for the reef, then go and talk to traditional owners about what they have seen in their oral history. And, you know, they've seen massive change on uh, on reefs along the eastern Australian coast, walked around upon what is today under hundreds of metres of, of, of water. Um, and they understand the connection between people and the seascape, sea country, um, and the critical interdependence between those things. And the messaging I've certainly heard from those groups is that we really need to be looking at it like that and thinking about that and thinking about the climate as posing an existential threat to us as much as it does the reef. So when we ask the question, is the reef dead? It's not about whether the reef is dead. It's what is it telling us? You know, And it's telling us that we really do need to do something about climate change. That's what traditional owners are saying up and down the coast for, you know, for their particular country. That's what most... Well, the vast, vast majority of the scientific community are saying, and I think that's actually what you're hearing from most communities of people, is that we, we really do need to tackle climate change if we want to enjoy this amazing, majestic um, icon in the way that so many of us have in the past. Well, Roger, thank you so much for joining us today and for all the time you've given us to talk about this. I'm sure that we will be catching up with you again very soon, but thank you for being here and um, tackling the number one question that we get hit with all the time. Thank you, Eleanor. It's a pleasure. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform, leave us a rating or review, and visit our website, reefauthority.gov.au, for more Great Barrier Reef content.